the way that I try not to be cynical is that I have a bit of a realistic outlook on people and decision makers and what drives them and then the role that I can play in making things happen. Hello and welcome to Disability Done Different, a podcast by DSC where we have candid conversations about all things disability and NDIS. My name is Evie Norfell. I'm Roland Norfell. And today joining us as a host is someone many of you are going to be quite happy to hear from. It's DSC's Editor-in-Chief, Sarah Gingold. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Evie, and hello, everyone. <laughs> Sarah is the person responsible for some of DSC's best one-liners, most of them, if mm. we're being honest. <laughs> but probably uh, more importantly, she's very well known for her articles that sort the fact from fiction when it comes to NGIS policy and reports. So we're going to get a chance to put you in the hot seat soon, Sarah, as an interview we. Yeah, we're going to do a special podcast. But before we introduce today's guest, who is not you, we do want to ask you a couple of questions anyway. First question is that you have written over 100 articles for DSC. We celebrated that milestone with a beautiful vegan cake last year. And my question to you is, which one are you most proud of? That's a really hard question. The perfectionist in me thinks like nothing I've ever produced is any good. <laughs> and I'm always shocked when people tell me otherwise. But I was proud of the independent assessment coverage we did. Like that was a very hard time for the sector. And I think we did do a good job of providing people some more detail. So mm. they had a bit more understanding what was going on. Might not have been comforting, but. Yeah, no, you did great work. It was certainly a period of time that we put a lot of thought into what we wanted to be putting out there and how we wanted to be of service. Exactly, yeah. And then second question is that we talk a lot on this podcast about when the personal becomes professional. And so I'm curious to hear from you how your lived experience informs your work. Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever been able to separate the personal and the professional in this job. Maybe that's not such a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> But like my lived experience, I was diagnosed um, with ME-CFS, which colloquially known as chronic fatigue syndrome, colloquially and not greatly known, <laughs> in 2012. And that experience of disability is why I was, why I got into this sector and why I am passionate about the NDIS and how we can better support people with disability. So I don't know when the personal stops, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like a juicy beginning to a story you're going to have to tune into a later episode to hear the end of. We're thrilled to have you joining us as a host today, Sarah, and we're also delighted to welcome our guest, Louise Yapsley. Thank you so much for having me. Louise is a registered lobbyist that helps NGOs to get the attention of governments. And prior to this, she worked for a decade in Australian government across finance, climate change, environment and veterans affairs portfolios. And it's such a mouthful. We thought we'd ask you to explain um, to people what you actually do, because um, so often we have real trouble explaining to the older generations as, as our workplaces are changing so quickly what it is that we do. What do you do? So that's a really good question. I guess my role is really helping peak bodies and different organisations talk more directly to government, particularly around solving uh, key challenges that they're interested in. Uh, and where I come in is I know who to talk to. I know how to frame their problems and their issues and what they want. Uh, and so basically I become their air traffic control um, and uh, basically trying to help them navigate uh, the government processes and key decision makers to ultimately get the wins that they need. 
Right. Um, so are people born lobbyists? Do you grow into it? Is it a pill you take? How does it happen? <laughs> I think some people would think there's a special circle of hell where lobbyists are born. Yeah. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm your garden variety, very, very friendly uh, local lobbyist. Um, basically, I've always loved politics and public policy. So even I remember in primary school, I'd always watch the news. I was a very nerdy kid. I just loved the spectacle and theatre and the the prospect of really getting things done in politics. I would never wanted to be a politician, but I was always interested in how you could use politics and government to get really cool things done. So that was something that really stuck with me throughout school and uni. Um, and I basically created this idea of coming to Canberra and working on public policy. I really didn't know what that entailed. And then over time I worked out, hey, there's actually this really cool middle ground where you can do some meaningful work on public policy, but you also get to play in the political sphere. So I'm really enjoying that kind of happy middle ground. So you get one of those um, weird coloured doohickeys that gives you access to all kinds of places in Parliament House, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm very lucky to have a sponsored pass. And the sponsored pass... I mean, it's it's part of such a life and you must see other people coming and going with sponsor passes, the whole Canberra bubble thing. My, one of my favourite hotels in the world is the, the Hyde in Canberra because you have a drink there and you, you get a real feeling that a lot of people have had drinks at the Hyde and discussed important politics and the hill's not far away. But it's not attractive to a lot of people. It's obviously attractive to you, that 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 bubble. Have you already explained or is there more to it? I mean, the Canberra bubble obviously is is a bit of a... A, a weird term in Canberra. It's not something that we actually like as locals, but I understand why people see it that way because the first question that somebody in Canberra would ask you is, where do you work? Whereas the first question in Sydney or Melbourne and Perth would, would be, where do you live? So Canberra is really about where you work because a lot of people are working in politics or government. And so then very quickly you get to know, well, oh, you're working in this portfolio. So, you know, these people and so then you can have some really interesting conversations quite quickly because you know that they're interested in this particular thing. Um, the sponsored passing is very funny because that orange lanyard can be a bit of a marker saying like, you know, you've got to watch this person. They're a bit, you know, you've got to watch out for them. But I think the most effective lobbyists that I've seen are really about relationships and don't tie themselves too closely to one particular government or the other. The half-life of a career in politics is pretty short. And so I think if you base things on your career on values and um, working like ethically and respectfully with people, you'll have a much longer career uh, in politics and in lobbying. That's great. I'm curious about why you have to watch out for the people with the orange lanyard. Do you bite or? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just more that you always know that they're after something. You know, they've got a client and they're not going to let you out of your sights unless you, you give them what you want. So, so you turn away when you see them down the corridor. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. But. <laughs> <laughs> Louise, it really seems like you're not very cynical. And, and from the outside of someone with very, very little to do with politics, uh, it's easy to be cynical when you look at some of the less than stellar politicians that we've had in the last few years. And, you know, I acknowledge that it's a privilege to be cynical and disengage with politics. But I'm curious to hear from you. How do you not get cynical in, in your role? So 
I, I think there's always a risk that you do become cynical because, um, you know, when you think about the pace of government and media and politics, it's pretty relentless. And so I think when you think about what cynicism actually is, it's about that that belief that people are just driven by self-interest and so there's no real point in engaging because it's just, it's all terrible and why would we even try? But I think in reality, life's a lot, a lot more complex than that. People can be driven by self-interest because we're all human, but we're also driven by a lot of other things and a lot of other values. And so I think the way that I stop being, like I try not to be cynical is that I have like a, a bit of a realistic outlook on people and decision makers and what drives them and then the role that I can play in making things happen. Because I think in reality, chaos is our natural order. Things aren't going to get simpler. They're probably going to get more complex. And so we need to learn to ride those waves. Uh, and there's different ways that we can do that. And I think at the end of the day, we really can't afford to be cynical because there's still a lot of stuff that needs to get done. Uh, and in the end, I've chosen to be in this role, so I have to love it. And so I really try and create an environment where I work with interesting people on interesting issues, getting things done and raising people's voices up. The moment that it gets hard and unenjoyable, I think is the time to go make coffees. Yeah, I really admire your attitude, Louise. I think that's wonderful. We need people like with your attitude in politics. Um I want to ask you a professional question. Can you give us a free consultation live on air? <laughs> um, so the NDIS has a bit of a PR problem at the moment. The media conversation, as we know, is very fixated on the rising costs. And the NDIS is obviously a lot more complex than its price tag. So what would you advise as someone who specializes in PR and communication? How do we fix the NDIS's PR problem? I'm so grateful that you gave me such a simple and easy question. <laughs> so to be honest, when we think about PR problems, I like to think about like what are the drivers of that particular PR problem? And for me, the, the key issue around the NDIS is implementation. It's about sticking the landing. I think the, the initial premise of the NDIS in terms of its principles and its, and its value to all Australians is clear and I think still passes the pub test. I think there's still a huge amount of support in the community for the value of the NDIS. The current challenge is around the growth of the scheme, who it looks after and how they're looked after. So I really think there's a couple of things in terms of kind of turning the Queen Mary on the NDIS. Um, we need to be still telling the, the stories around how the NDIS is working because I think we need to maintain that broader public support. And the way that we do that is tell the stories around how it is helping individual people maximise their choice and control, change their lives, be independent, um, and deliver on the initial premise of the NDIS. I think as well, the, the NDIA and Minister Shorten are still in triage mode a little bit in terms of trying to stem the pipeline of the bad stories because as soon as you try and say something good about the NDIS, I think quite rightly there are a thousand people saying, well, it's not working for me. I've just had my funding cut. Um, I can't get access to the services I need and it's holding me back. So stemming the pipeline of the bad stories 
And then having a really clear vision post NDIS review about how the federal government will take the NDIS forward. So having a clear sense of like a very simple, like almost elevator pitch around this is what the NDIS will be in 2024 for the next generation. And I think tying that quite closely to the um, the initial premise of the NDIS, but then having that clear story around how it will be looking after people and maximising their choice and control going forward. It's so complex, isn't it, when you you think about trying to find that, um, I want to say balance, but it's not exactly what I mean, but but trying to honour the stories of people who say that NDIS has been incredibly difficult for them and that it's, you know, an ongoing struggle. And at the same time, you know, if we break it, we'll all buy it in terms of preserving the NDIS mm-hmm. in the public's imagination and and maybe within the disability sector we can have conversations that are complex and that can hold that complexity but once it gets to a mainstream media audience like a lot of those complexities get flattened Um, and I know that's something that you're quite interested in you actually pitched a conference session or pitched a session for the conference that we ran in June which was um, a highlight for me one that you ran with Rick Morton and um, Senator David Pocock on persuasive advocacy and I know one of the big topics there is about getting your message your complex message across in a way to someone who may not understand the complexity as a basis in their role Um, I'd love to know a bit more about how you experienced that session. Um, What was the inspiration for you? How you felt about it? And can I just jump in before you do answer it? Because um, we did a call for papers and we were really surprised. We got a couple of hundred responses to this call for papers. And then um, Jess, who was controlling the call, just um, sent me through this one and said, oh, have a look at this one. It's like, holy shit. You know, this is Louise. (laughs) It's Rick. It's it's, um, Senator Pocock. And it's such a great idea. And it's just sort of wandered in. Um, in amongst 200 other things. We're so excited to get you to do it. So what was your question, Amy? I don't know. Like, just tell us about the session. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that that really came to me in January because um, I try to have a couple of weeks off in January just to kind of have a bit of a respite before the onslaught of the budget season. And I was having a bit of a think about what are the kind of things and conversations and events that I wanted to be doing and um I don't want to be, I never want to be a gatekeeper for the kind of things that I do. I feel like there are some really fundamental things that people can take um, from a panel session like that without having to engage somebody like me that can make their advocacy and uh, communications and um, make everything that they do better in terms of how they talk to government. So I thought what better way to have a conversation around that than to bring two amazing um, national figures along and, you know, really test some of those quite deeply held assumptions around what advocacy is to government and what works and what doesn't. Uh, So I really don't think I could ever do a panel again because how could I top that? (laughs) I watched it again just to get ready for this um podcast always and it was such a pleasant conversation between three people that liked each other and you can't bullshit that sort of authenticity and so you you must have loved it 
no, it was lovely. And the the way that the communication, the, the conversation really flowed, um, I think it was just a blessing having those two. They're both uh, incredibly effective advocates. Um, you know, Senator Pocock is so passionate about community advocacy and I see that every day and he has coffee outside my building and is just so passionate about hearing what's going on in, in his community in all different um, walks of life. And then obviously Rick with his incredible track record raising issues that, a lot of other mainstream journalists really haven't got to grips with and he has an incredible radar picking those stories that he know can basically change national policy. I saw it within government and how much he uh, tortured a particular ex-finance minister uh, yeah, and yeah. I think, you know, the Royal Commi- um, the Rebuget Royal Commission commissioners couldn't have said it better in terms of his contribution, uh, both through social media and the Saturday paper. So um, I think just being able to bring those two uh, to the conference and have that really amazing conversation around that's underpinned by the values of effective advocacy was just, yeah, so much fun. I remember um, talking to you about the panel when you were getting ready for the panel. One of the things you said to me was, I'm organising a community forum with Senator Pocock and we need to get that done before I can really finalise his involvement in the panel. And I still haven't really understood what that community forum was, but I, I think it was a really clever thing. Do you mind telling me about it? Yeah, of course. So, um, so Senator Pocock has been quite interested in uh, you know, disability and aged care issues, obviously, throughout his campaign and, and in the Senate. Um, he's also really passionate about hearing from people with lived experience before he would go and talk publicly about a particular issue. Uh, And so it was just kind of a natural fit to say, okay, well, here's this panel. I think it would be amazing for you to be able to talk about your experience as a senator uh, and the things that you see work. But before you do that, let's get you to talk to some people in Canberra with lived experience of disabilities so that you feel like you've had that recent conversation around what, pe- what challenges people are facing, what's working for them, what's not. Uh, and so you feel like you've, you've got a more recent sense about what's happening on the ground before you go and speak on a panel about similar issues. And you didn't get paid for doing that. You just sort of threw it together and he didn't, you know, it's, he just thought that was a good idea. Yeah, I'll do that, Louise. Yeah, and it was great. So we brought together um, a dozen people with uh, spinal cord injuries and multiple sclerosis and had a really great open conversation around Um, what's working in the NDIS, how people might be missing out, um, who might not have um, been eligible for the NDIS, and then what's missing in mainstream services. I think in the next 12 months, there needs to be a really um, nuanced national conversation around what inclusive mainstream services actually look like. That's great. I feel like we were talking about cynicism before. I feel like a lot less people would be cynical if that's the side of politics we saw more often. Yeah, yeah. I, I might seem optimistic, but I'm also quite stubborn. And so, and I also don't like accepting the premise of what people tell me. So if somebody says that I can't have something, that's red rag <laughs> to me. So um, I think, yeah, that it's part optimism and part, I know I can get this done. So just mm. watch me. I feel like stubbornness is actually a good quality. I feel like it's got a bad rep. Maybe you could go do a PR thing on that. (laughs) I need to write on stubbornness, I think. (laughs) Just got a bit of a vested interest in that as well. (laughs) 
Um, just changing tack a bit, Louise, I wanted to ask you, like, what are common mistakes that you see people make advocating for something that they just care about really deeply and maybe is a bit personal for them as well? Hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> for a friend, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the common trap that people fall into is that everyone's favourite subject is themselves. And so when they're trying to explain something that's really concerning them, they go into way too much detail about what the problem is, how it's affecting them, how it's affecting their family, um, rather than focusing on, hang on, who am I talking to and what do they care about and how can I link what I'm talking about to what they care about And how can I really quickly get them up to speed on what's actually happening and what do I want? Because the what do I want part is the part you have to land to actually get any progress. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Can you talk to us about, I know you've talked about being a creative lobbyist before. Mm -hmm. So I think... When people think about the stereotypes of what a lobbyist is, they kind of think of a middle-aged white guy who probably went to private school and has a particular haircut and probably relies a bit too heavily on his old boys network. Yeah, you can just smell the cologne, can't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's the the blue pinstripe suit for me. Um, So I really feel like I'd I'd try and turn that on its head because um, if you rely on your old boys network, It's only going to get you so far. I think you need to make your own luck as a lobbyist. So it's all about the values that you bring, the way that you build relationships, the kind of creative lens that you bring to problem solving and pitching solutions, you know, thinking about when's the best time, who's the right person to pitch this to, who can be a champion publicly and behind the scenes about what I'm trying to achieve. Um, And then always thinking how would I see this if somebody sent this across my desk as a public servant, as a political advisor, as a minister, how would I react if somebody pitched this to me? And so I think with all of those combined, you're kind of forced to be creative and consider, hang on, I've got all of these potential levers to get things done, which are the most relevant and useful to actually achieve what I want? I think it's funny how easily we forget that these big institutions that we want to change are ultimately just made up of people mm. <laughs> and that we, we we ultimately need to get one or more people to, to, to see it from our side and that it's not this big old institution. It's just, it's funny how easy it is to forget that because I, I think we're all guilty of it. Yeah. And I think we have that in our like newsletter as well. It's like, you've got to remember what the audience wants to hear. I love that focus on the recipient of the communication rather than the communicator, I think it's powerful. The other lens that I like to bring is really thinking about uh, power and so how you can use politics and policy to influence someone's power, to harness it, to grow your own power and really thinking about the drivers and sources of those power, that, that power. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of been thinking a bit big picture around this at the moment and then thinking about how you can apply it to particular policy issues. So, yeah, it's a fun space to be playing around in. Can you say a bit more about how that might apply in an NDIS space? Yeah, so I think um, where you look, when you think about where the Albanese government is at the moment, they've come into government after a lengthy period of opposition. 
they've launched a whole lot of big reviews, inquiries, royal commissions, you know, trying to basically reset the national approach to a whole lot of really complex portfolios. Very quickly, they're going to be moving into a space where, rightly or wrongly, they will now own the problems that they inherited and they'll have to move into more of an implementation phase and really stick the landing on all of the amazing policy ideas that have been proposed by all the eminent people that they've put onto various, you know, review panels and task forces and royal commissions. So I can see that the Prime Minister across a number of different portfolios will actually have to show within 18 months that he can implement really big picture reform affordably, you know, make it meaningful to people in their daily lives and then can be trusted with another um, term of government. So my kind of lens around how we can use power in policy and politics is really thinking about from a big picture how you can help the government make that narrative real in particular policy issues. So when we think about the NDIS, how can particular peak bodies or service providers or NDIS participants help Minister Shorten tell a story about how the NDIS is working on the ground post-review? How will the implementation of the review findings work in practice and how is it actually delivering on the premise of the NDIS? So, Louise, let's do, let's do a plug for what advocacy, because I'm a, a fan of your mob, that's your, your business. If people want to work with you, um, I already know the answer to this, but you don't have to have a massive budget. We got you to do a pretty small job for us um, six months ago, very pleased with working with you and the way it went. Is it just for the, the big fellas or it really is um, something that people can work with you on, the smaller smaller stuff? Yeah, so we work with a variety of different size organisations and we predominantly work with peak bodies or service providers um, mm-hmm. to basically solve particular problems and it might be um you know one particular thing that they need urgent assistance with assistance with so for example for a particular client um we had to very quickly raise something with the NDI, the former NDIS NDIA CEO to resolve something very quickly um whereas other clients might be like you know what we'd like an 18 month or 3 year plan about how we'd like to progress our advocacy on these particular things. I think it's really interesting that a lot of peak bodies and service providers now broadening their understanding about the role that they can play in federal and state government advocacy. And so basically we are a partner in that process, um, predominantly providing advice, but then sometimes doing the work on the ground as well to help make that a reality. So, um, yeah, check out our website, come and have a coffee, and we can see how we can help. Louise, I want to ask your advice, and I'm hoping by the time I finish telling you the problem, I'll have my specific question. Um, One of the conversations that Sarah and I and some of our other team often have in planning our content is about thinking about that balance between uh, positive news stories and negative news stories. I mean, that's really collapsing the complexity of that. But a lot of what we need to report on is, uh, you know, there's a report that's come out and it's actually understating this complexity in some ways, or it might even be properly false or something like that. So, but that's definitely a role that DSE has to play that I think some people appreciate, uh, which is about pointing out what's going wrong with the NDIS. 
but then when we look at the broader world and the role we want to play, we also don't want to be people who, you know, every time you open an email from us, your day gets a bit worse because you found out that NDIS is broken in some new way. And Sarah, can you help me with a question? Yeah, I guess like just what are your thoughts on like how you strike that balance and whether it's a balance question or is it about like, is there a way you can hold both in the same content? And just by way of background, um, Evie and Sarah invented this green, orange, red traffic light system and they label every article we've done for the last couple of years, whether it's negative, red, whether it's positive, green, or whether it's, and so at least they're getting a picture of what they're doing and just how yeah. we do, yeah. But it's, it's really becoming quite hard to do that. Because sometimes I'm like, it's this much red and it's like a tiny bit green and then there's a whole bunch of it that's orange. And it's like, where do you land? How is the person feeling when they finish reading it? So I guess the ultimate judge of that is really your readers. So in terms of whether you're getting the balance right and and, and what feeling they're taking away, I think I try and think about um, whenever I'm drafting an op-ed or a piece to pitch to a journalist, it's like, what are the emotions that I'm trying to extract from reading my piece? Um, and what's the takeaway feeling uh, or value that I want someone to, to feel from it? Um, so I guess the first thing would be like, you know, what feedback are you getting uh, from your readers? And I think the second thing is I totally understand that the positive stories are harder to find but I think they're really worth the investment. And I think uh, the last thing we want to do is contribute to that, you know, defeatist attitude around what's possible in this space. Um, so wherever I can, I really try and find those positive stories. Yes, they're, 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 more, they're harder to find sometimes, but they're really worth the effort. So Louise, you play in a, a string quartet and you work with complex problems. Which one brings you more joy? So I think the easiest way to answer that question is, um, I get bored easily and so I like being a little bit good at a lot of things. So I'm always, you know, I don't know if you've seen The West Wing lately, but Jeb Bartlett's quote was always, what's next? And I really feel yep, like yep. that's that's always my attitude. It's like, oh, I'm really enjoying this thing, but what's next? Uh, <laughs> so that's why I think, you know, doing canoeing or doing uh, playing in a quartet or I've just joined a new orchestra or you know, I'm always looking for like that next fun challenge. And I think as an introvert, I, I kind of struggle a little bit with the kind of let's, you know, always catch up over drinks or coffee or, you know, sitting face to face. I feel like sometimes it turns into a bit of a, a job interview feel. So I always yeah. like finding things that I'm doing with people. Uh, and I guess that's how I get my energy and maintain my optimism and um, stubbornness. So you're a fan of the West Wing walk and talk as well? Oh, yes. And I also put my jackets on the same way that Jed Butler does. That's kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> like... I think I've watched it three times the whole series. I think I'm due for another watch. I love your style, Louise. I, uh, I'm, I'm leaving this conversation feeling like we've acknowledged that there are things that need to change, but I don't feel worse. In fact, I feel better than when we came in. Yep, yep. And I'm going to take this this conversation as inspiration to try to think about how when we have next have those conversations we can imitate that style a little bit 
And if we could ask you to put your very big brain to how we can work together in the future, whether it's another conference panel hosted by Louise or something else, I'm, it seems that um, you're on the front foot. You were the first time. so What's next? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think uh, it would be really interesting to kind of think about um, a panel where we could talk about how you grow and use power. Um, I think that's a bit of a challenging concept sometimes for people working in policy and advocacy because it feels a little bit too political. But I think it's really the lens for how you judge whether something's actually going to be effective. And then the other thing that I really like working on at the moment is how you weave advocacy into everything that you do in a really streamlined way. So, you know, how do you tell the story about what you're doing on social media to your to a peak body membership, um, to the public more broadly? And how do you weave that into all of the other things that you might be doing as an organisation? That's great. So, Louise, I think we're done and dusted and it's been delightful talking to you again. So yeah, thank you very much. My thank pleasure. You. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. Uh, If you want to subscribe, please do. You can do that at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.